Well, as you can tell by the video introduction, the inconvenient truth we're dealing with today has to do with money. And I know that there are some of you who sit in those seats just squirming even now, thinking, oh, here we go. Rick's going to harangue about giving this and giving that. You're absolutely right. (laughs) Not really. But what we are going to do is look at the Word of God and see what it has to say about, in particular, our possessions and our material wealth. We're looking in this series of messages at some inconvenient truths, things that if we take them seriously will press in on us a wee bit and may maybe cause us some discomfort and some unrest. This particular truth may be that for you this morning. may not be, but it may be. I'd like to invite you to turn in your copy of the Scriptures to Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. There are many places I could go, but uh, I'm going to have a zero in on this particular section of the text today, 2 Corinthians chapter 8. As Paul encourages a spirit of generosity and grace, gracious giving, he instructs the brothers and sisters, the Christians in Corinth, and says, beginning in chapter 8 of 2 Corinthians, and now, brothers, We want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. And they did not do as we expected. But they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. So we urged Titus, since he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in your love for us, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. The Word of God for us today. There's a wonderful story, I'm not sure of its source, about a man who decided to divorce his wife after some 20 years of marriage. Realizing that the financial settlement of their divorce would be fairly huge, he began to rummage through his old papers and checks 
And as he went through this box of checks, he thumbed through one canceled check after another and came across an old faded check made, made out to the hotel where he and his lovely bride had spent their honeymoon. As he continued to thumb through, he discovered another old check that was used as the, the installment on their very first car that they had owned as a couple. While looking through the checks there in his room all alone and in silence, he began to finger a check that had been paid to the hospital at the birth of their daughter. And then there was another one that brought back the feelings he had when he first wrote the check for $2,000 for the down payment on their first little home. Finally, he pushed the, the box of checks away and he reached for the telephone and he called his estranged wife. And in humility, he told her that, in his opinion, that he and his wife had invested far too much in their marriage to give up and to throw it away. And in all humbleness of spirit, he asked her over the phone if they couldn't have a fresh start and a new beginning and rebuild. If you and I could go through a family's checkbook, we could read the story of their lives. We would find out what that family considers valuable, what their priorities are, how that family lives, how that family saves, how that family spends. In fact, I'm convinced that if we take a look at our checkbooks closely, that our checkbooks will reveal a whole lot more about what we consider as our priorities and about our seriousness concerning our walk with God, even more revealing than even the way our personal Bible looks. I think our checkbooks, in some peculiar way, announce what we really treasure. The Apostle Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians, uh, lays out a challenge to his brothers and sisters there. He knew them well. And he talks to them about their giving, about their material wealth. And he begins his words in this particular section of Scripture in chapter 8, and he says, And now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. The grace that Paul is talking about here, of course, is the grace of giving. He's reminding them that God's grace, His his marvelous, matchless grace has been poured out on their lives through Jesus Christ and that now they are to respond in kind by generous, gracious giving. And that's what this entire section of Scripture is about. It's about the grace of giving from beginning to end. I think it's important for us to, to realize that, that giving is about grace. I think some of us have this mistaken notion that, that when we talk about money, that it, it begins to take on a legalistic tone. It becomes very law-centered. What I love about Paul's encouragement here to his brothers and sisters in the faith as he talks to them about giving is that it's not centered on the law at all. Instead, it's focused on grace. I mean, look at chapter 8 and 9 of 2 Corinthians on its own. In this chapter, the word grace, the Greek word is charis, occurs ten times in chapters 8 and 9. You can go through, in fact, I have in my Bible circled every time that the word grace appears in chapters 8 and 9. 
In the first nine verses, it occurs five times. I'd like to just take note of those times because I want you to, to see that this whole appeal of Paul's to the church on giving rides on the matter of grace. In verse 1, he says, we want you to know about the grace. The Greek word is tain karin, the grace. Then in verse 4, he talks about the uh, privilege of sharing in the service to the saints. The word there again in the Greek, not so in the English, but in the Greek, is the word tain karin. Again, grace. Down in verse 7, he talks about uh, just as you excel in everything, faith, speech, knowledge, earnestness, and your love for us. See that you also excel in the, the word is grace. Takarita, different case, but same word, grace. And then in verse 9, he says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, the word is tain karin. Again, grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. The reason I take a moment to, to focus on that is because I want us to understand that without apology and without hesitancy this morning, as I talk to you about this issue of money, did you know that the Bible speaks more about money than it speaks about prayer or faith? It's a pretty important topic. But I want you to understand that the fulcrum that this hinges on is not the law, is not legalism, but instead it's a very gracious thing. I need you to understand this because what we're talking about here today is grace. We practice the grace of giving as followers of Christ. We practice this because God in His marvelous grace first reached out to people like you and me who deserve to be damned and have the wrath of God poured out on us. And yet God in Jesus Christ, praise be to His name, has very graciously acted toward you and me and in His mercy has reached out to us to forgive us, to adopt us into His eternal family, to be even at this moment preparing a celestial home where we will dwell for all of eternity. And we practice the grace of giving, not in a legalistic sort of way, but we do it because God in His grace has so lavishly praised His name. So lavishly. Aren't you glad today for the grace of God in Jesus? So lavishly given to us. Now what I'd like to do for a few moments is to very quickly summarize for you some of the Old Testament and New Testament teaching about giving and then cinch the sack, draw some implications for you and me, and how we are to give of our possessions to the work of God. You can look these passages up. You can refer to them on the screen. You can jot them down later this afternoon or later this week in your daily quiet time. Uh, uh, read them on your own time. I want to look, first of all, at the Old Testament because I think there's a bit of haziness in much of our thinking about giving in the Old Testament. If I were to ask you how much people in the Old Testament gave, probably you would say they gave 10%. They gave a tithe. The word is T-I-T-H-E. It means 10%. We, some people, practice this biblical pattern of tithing. It's not tithing, it's tithing. We practice that. Well, if you said 10% in the Old Testament, that's, that's partly true. Because there were several different types of mandatory compulsory giving 
if you were a good, faithful, obedient Jew and, and were faithful to the old covenant, there were some things that you had to do in response to God's covenant with you. First of all, there was the tithe. It was called the Lord's tithe or the Levite's tithe. The Levites were those who were appointed one of the tribes of Israel. The Levites were appointed as the singers and the leaders of worship in the temple. The tithe was given to support the priests and the ministry of the Levites in the tabernacle and then later the temple. Leviticus chapter 27 and verse 20 outlines this and stipulates that a tenth, a tithe, of everything from the land, whether grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord and therefore is holy to the Lord. That is to say that 10%, in according to the Old Testament covenant, 10% of all that you earned went to the Lord. Now, understand, their culture was different from ours. Uh, it was an agrarian culture uh, based on agriculture. And so 10% of all your produce... And 10% of all your crops and your flocks and your livestock was required. It was compulsory. There was no option about this. If you were going to be a faithful Jew, this is what you did. And if you did not do it, you were considered to be a robber of God. This is exactly what Malachi was talking about in Malachi chapter 3 and verse 8. When he says, will a man rob God? Yet you rob me. You ask, how do we rob you, God? And God responds, in tithes. And offering. So first of all, you have this compulsory 10%, all your produce, all your livestock, shave off 10%, give it to the Lord's work to support the house of God. There was a second tithe, though, called the festival tithe. Deuteronomy chapter 12, verses 10 and 11 talks about this. It says, you will cross the Jordan and settle in the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. And He will give you rest from all your enemies around you so that you will live in safety. Then to the place the Lord your God will choose as a dwelling for His name, that is Jerusalem, you are to bring everything I command you, your burnt offerings and sacrifices, your tithes, that is your tenths, and special gifts, and all the choice possessions you have vowed to the Lord. And this compulsory festival tithe was to be used for religious celebrations, to bring family and friends together to celebrate the faithfulness of God. So according to Old Testament law, you have two compulsory 10% tithes. If you're keeping track, it's up to 20% now. Then there was another tithe termed the poor tithe. Deuteronomy 14, verses 28 and 29 talks about this. Verse 28, at the end of every three years, bring all the tithes of that year's produce and store it in your town so that the Levites, who have no allotment or inheritance of their own, and the aliens, the fatherless, and the widows who live in your towns may come and eat and be satisfied so that the Lord your God may bless you and all the work of your hands. Thus, every three years, in addition to these other two tithes, the Lord's tithe and the festival tithe, Every three years, there was to be a 10% tithe for helping people in poverty. If you're calculating, that breaks down to about 3% per year. This means that mandatory tithes for a faithful Israelite are racked up to be about 23% of their income annually. A tithe for the priesthood, a tithe for the national religious feasts, and a tithe that aided the poor. It was all mandatory. It was all compulsory. It didn't end there. There was a mandatory type of profit sharing for the poor. 
a benevolent fund, if you will, for the poor. Leviticus 19, verses 9 and 10 says that when you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the alien. In fact, if you'll remember in the book of Ruth, that Ruth and Naomi were gleaners. They went gleaning the field. And, and that is because Boaz had been gracious enough to, to follow the, the law. He'd been good about that. If you were a farmer, it wasn't a large amount. It just meant that you just harvested your field once. You didn't go all the way to the edges of the field. You left some of the produce there knowing that the gleaners would come by and they would be able to live because you'd been gracious. Been gracious in giving for their sake. Those are the mandatory ties. Then there were volunteer free will giving, what I will call grace giving, which included first fruits giving and free will offerings. An Israelite who loved the Lord, in addition to his 23 to 25 percent, would give the first fruits of his crop. That is, before the harvest would come in, he would take the first fruits, the best lamb. He would take the, the best bushel of vegetables and he would offer it to God. He would survey his fields for the very best of the crop. He would harvest it and take that best part to the Lord before the harvest, trusting that God would bring in a marvelous harvest that would be multiplied over and again. It was faith giving, much like our faith promise giving in the Christian Missionary Alliance. It's, it was stepping out in faith and believing that God would provide according to his riches in Christ Jesus. It was entirely voluntarily voluntary, but many Israelites practiced it. Finally, above that, there was free will offerings that were given for special projects. We learn about one of them where Moses, God had told Moses to, to say to the Israelites to bring an offering. You receive an offering for each man whose heart prompts him to give. It wasn't mandatory, but as their heart was moved by God, they would open up their pocketbook. And from the heart, in a free will, joyous and gracious way, give over and above the mandatory offerings that have been given to God. I think it's rather enlightening for us to look more closely at these evidences in Old Testament Scripture because the ideal in the Old Testament was to give lavishly, to give with a spirit of great rejoicing, whether it was a mandatory thing or voluntary, that for the faithful Israelite, you gave from the heart. It's what you wanted to do in response to God's faithfulness to you. So some were giving 30%, some were giving 40%, some were giving more. But they did it with joy. Let me just make two brief observations before we move to the New Testament. First, it's clear to me that tithing was not to be reduced to merely being a pragmatic function of paying the priests and sustaining the temple worship. It was an expression of gratitude to a faithful God, Jehovah. Listen to me. God doesn't need their tithes. In commanding tithes, God was not seeking what they had. God was seeking their hearts. And He wanted to know whether they would voluntarily give Him their hearts. Secondly, it occurs to me that tithing 
was a way of expressing to God just how dependent they were upon God for everything. I don't know that in our society today that we have that sense. There are not many of us who are farmers that rely on the rains that fall and the snows of winter and and the right weather to to bring in a, a, a great crop or harvest. We've kind of lost sense of the whole thing that that God is the one who supplies what we have. He is the one who supplies the sun and the rain and the snow. He is the one who's given us all that we have. He doesn't need what we have, but He wants us to give it voluntarily in a gracious, liberal, lavish way to declare that we are dependent upon Him and we understand it, that He is the source, the giver of all good gifts. So that's the Old Testament in very brief, abridged form. I could go on for many weeks. I won't because probably attendance would wane if I did. You can only take one week of the preacher haranguing on money. So let's look at the New Testament quickly and see that the picture changes in the New Testament. It's interesting that Jesus mentions tithing only twice. And both times that He mentions it, it's in a rather derogatory fashion. Tithing. In Matthew chapter 23 and verse 23, Jesus says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees! And He says, you are hypocrites. You give a tenth, you give a tithe of your spices. You are so fanatic. You are so OCD about this tithing thing that you tithe your spices. You open the spice drawer and you tithe your dill and your mint and your cumin. But on things that are more important, Jesus says, important matters of the law like justice and mercy and faithfulness, Jesus rebukes them and He says, you should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. In Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14, Jesus tells a parable about some who trusted in themselves and in their own righteousness. And in the process of trusting in their own righteousness, despised others. Jesus told a parable and He said, two men went up to the temple to pray, doing a very religious thing. They went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. And this is what he said, God, I thank you. I hope we never pray this way. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, like robbers and evildoers and adulterers, or even as bad as this tax collector. He commends himself and he says, I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. Obviously implied there, Jesus was not regarding tithing as the cure-all to spiritual maturity. He does not reject it. He affirms it for Israel. But it seems to me that Jesus is far more intent on the weightier matters of the spiritual life like faith. Jesus makes it plain that you can tithe everything. You can tithe your spices to God and not trust Him. You see, it seems clear to me that Jesus was not seeking what was theirs. What Jesus was seeking was their heart. 
the love of their soul, not the load of their silver. It's interesting to note that that the Apostle Paul never refers to tithing even once. Not once. What's happening with our lights today? We need to pay the light bill. We have gas, but no electricity. Could somebody do something about that? No, don't. We might have problems, too. Oh, my. The Apostle Paul never mentions tithing once. Not once. Instead, he gives a very brief outline and pattern on, on how we should give. Uh, you can read it in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. I won't take time to, to flesh it out, but let me just give you the outline of it. Uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 16 that, first of all, our giving to, to the Lord's work should be one systematic. That's the first word he uses. On the first day of every week. It's systematic. Every Lord's Day, on the first day, that's Sunday, the Lord's Day, on the first day of every week, 1 Corinthians 16.2 says, the second word is individual, let each one of you, let each one of you on the first day of every week. The third word that Paul uses is consistent. Let each one of you on the first day of every week set aside a sum. Set aside and save. The thought here is, if you look at the verb tense, is that it's not just once and for all, but that every time you come together on the first day of the week, you are to set aside a sum and use it for the Lord's work. Let each one of you keep on setting aside. You don't wait until the end of the year to see how the year comes out. You don't wait until the next promotion comes. You give each Sunday of the year the first day of the week. The fourth word that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 16 is the word proportionate. He says, look how he puts it. He says that each of you should keep on setting aside a sum on the first day of the week, a sum of money in keeping with your income. Another translation says, set aside a sum as the Lord prospers you. The thought is that you may prosper greatly at one time in your your life and not so greatly another. You may have a tremendous year at one time and not so great a year at another. So your giving to God fluctuates as the Lord prospers you. It fluctuates according to the way that He has prospered you. By the way, may I ask, does the Lord know that you just got a raise recently? As you receive more, as you are prospered, you give more. Rather inconvenient, isn't it? The fifth word is private. Uh, Paul in 1 Corinthians 16 says, he, he mandates, let there be no collections when I come. This is the dream of a congregation that a preacher would say, don't let there be any offerings. Paul says, I don't want anybody to think that I'm money-grubbing. I don't want anybody to think that I'm manipulating the situation. So when I come to minister to you, he had founded this church at Corinth. He had a lot of clout. The people loved him at Corinth. He says, when I come and minister among you, I don't want you to use my presence as a way to fill the coffers. So don't let there be any collections. Let all collections be private. Systematic, individual, consistent, proportionate. And private. 
It's interesting that the only other place in the New Testament where tithing is mentioned is in Hebrews chapter 7, where the reference goes back to the first occasion of tithing. We didn't look at that today. First occasion of tithing in Genesis chapter 14. And the point is simply to show that Jesus Christ is like Melchizedek. That's the only other reference to tithing in the New Testament. Therefore, may we conclude with regard to positive, explicit teaching on the Old Testament practice of tithing, that the New Testament is pretty silent on the issue. Why is this? I think I may know why. I think, you may question, you may not agree, but I think that God took the focus off of giving a percentage in the early church, because he wanted his people to ask themselves a new question. And the new question that Jesus drives us to ask, I think, again and again and again, is not, how much should I give? Or change the emphasis, how much should I give? That's not the question any longer. But the question that Jesus drives us to ask ourselves is, how much dare I keep? You see, there's a primary difference, I think, between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And the primary difference between old and new is that the New Testament church is a missionary church. We have the Great Commission. You find it in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 to 20. Jesus tells his disciples, go and make disciples, teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you to do. Make disciples. That's our marching orders. That's what we are to do. We are a missionary church. We have an objective and a mission to take the gospel to the whole world. And, and Jesus makes it clear that this task is so immense and will require such stupendous investment of our commitment and our energies and our money that the thought of settling the issue of what we give by assigning a fixed percentage like a tithe is simply out of the question. My own conviction is this, and I'm preaching first to me before I ever preach to you. My own conviction is this that most middle and upper class Americans who merely tithe their income are robbing God. In a world where 10,000 people, friends, 10,000 people starve to death per day and many more are spiritually lost and dying eternally, the question is not, what percentage do I have to give? The question is, how much dare I keep for my own personal use? And that is very inconvenient. Scripture teaches that all we have is God's. Psalm 24, verse 1. It's all been loaned to us for just a little while on a temporary basis. That you and I are stewards, we're trustees. We're to use these material blessings. Some of us, we have a lot to manage. Some of us have a little to manage. 
But we're to steward whatever God has given us and to use it to maximize it for the glory of God and for the advancement of His kingdom here in this world. And I think it totally irrational. It is inconvenient, but I think it totally irrational to think that giving 10% of your income to the church settles the issue of good stewardship. As John Piper, the pastor of Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota says, in a world of such immense need, and in a, I didn't say this, John did, and in a country of such immense luxury, and under, under the commission of such a powerful Lord, the issue of stewardship is not, shall I tithe, but rather, how much of God's trust fund dare I use to surround myself with comforts? It's a wee bit inconvenient. But the Word of God and the call of Christ is radical. It's about grace. It's about being lavish and over the top, top and outside the box. And so it should be when it comes to our giving. As followers of Jesus Christ, the truth is this, that the standard is not 10% or 20% or 30 or 40. Throw away the percentages. Instead, I think the spirit of the New Testament is that generosity as a follower of Christ should be radical, lavish, gracious, and all-encompassing. The New Testament... John the Baptist says, the man with two tunics should share with him who has none. And the one who has food should do the same. If you're keeping track mathematically, that's 50%. Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord Jesus, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. Again, 50%. Jesus said to the rich young ruler, you remember his words, if you want to be perfect, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor that you will have treasure in heaven. And then, once you've done that, then you can come and follow me. If you're keeping track, that's 100%. Jesus said in Luke 14, in the same way, any of you who does not give up everything that he has cannot be my disciple. Again, 100%. I could go on and give other illustrations. We don't have time and you get the point. But my point is this, that the best way I know how to capture the spirit of New Testament, grace-filled, generous giving, is simply to say that the issue is not how much do I have to give, but how much should I keep. Not shall I tithe, but how much of the money that I hold in trust as a steward for Jesus Christ should I use for my own use? The question is not, can I afford to tithe? The question is, can I justify a lifestyle that consumes 90% of all that I make? And let me finally just speak a pastoral word here because I don't believe it's possible to grow to spiritual maturity without committing your finances to the Lord. It's awfully quiet in this room this morning. You see, Jesus can have our money and not our hearts. But He cannot have our hearts without our money. For Jesus said, for where your 
treasure is. There your heart will be also. You show me an individual who's given themselves fully to the Lord and complete surrender to the Lord, and I can show you a person who represents an exemplary model of graciousness and faithful giving. And that's what's really needed, to give oneself first to the Lord. Thomas Jefferson said, when the heart is right, the feet are swift. I'd like to play on that phrase for a moment and say, when the heart is right, the check is written, the wallet is open. When the heart is right, there's a spirit of generosity that pulsates in the life of a believer. God knows, God knows how difficult this is for some of us. I'm reminded of the great story, and I'm going to close, I promise. I'm reminded of the great story of D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was the pastor of Westminster Chapel in London. It was one of his favorite stories, who told about a farmer whose cow had given birth to twin calves. And uh, he was so excited to, to come to the supper table that night and to announce to his wife that old Bossy had given birth to twins. He was elated. And he said to his wife with sweeping bravado, he says, you know, dear, you know what we're going to do? We're going to give one of those calves to the Lord and we'll keep the other one to ourselves. That's what should be done. That's the right thing that we ought to do. A couple days transpired and he came back to the supper table. But this time, instead of being filled with joy, he was filled with a sense of solemnity and was rather quiet. And his wife asked him what was wrong. And he said, you know what, dear? I was in the barn today and I took notice of the fact that the Lord's calf had died. Why is it? The preacher can talk about anything else, and I'll say amen. But don't go fiddling around in our finances, preacher. It's inconvenient. And yet it's the truth. If we were to rummage through a box of old checks, Is there enough evidence there that would convict you as a, to be a follower of Christ? Would anybody know by thumbing through your checkbook that you are Christ's disciple? By the way that you spend, the way that you save, the way that you give, the way that you sacrifice, would anyone know? This morning, as we close the service, I'm asking our musicians to come right now and prepare themselves. We're going to sing. And I want us to take just a moment. You have, enough, you have enough time for a moment. Take a moment to just pause and take a good look at, at where you are in this issue. And then we'll sing, and then we'll be on our way. And we'll probably spend some money for lunch. And we may spend some money on entertainment this afternoon. But what have we given to the Lord? Bow your heads, would you, you, and let's pray. Father, there are some of us who are struggling today in our walk with you, especially in this
a very inconvenient truth of stewardship and giving. It pinches us hard. We don't like the sounds of it. We have too much debt, too many obligations. We keep thinking that when the kids are out of college or when we get the next promotion, that then we'll start to give. God, this truth is alien to so many. It flies in the face of conventional wisdom in our world. Help us, Lord, in this truth to be obedient. And may we, Lord, be able to sing with total integrity our final song today. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to Thee. Take my silver and my gold, not a mite would I withhold. Take my intellect and use every power as Thou shalt choose. Every power as Thou shalt choose.